since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. getting my workout this morning, up and down the steps, up and down the steps. I appreciate you guys are willing to tolerate so much of me this morning. You see, this morning um, is a bit of a test to see if you've been paying attention, because every week since January the 8th, that same video has been playing behind me each and every week before I come up here and when we, we dive into this sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And, and fortunately for us, that scripture that you have heard read week after week, it's actually pulled directly from the beginning of chapter 12, the first three verses of Hebrews 12. So we, we're going to start today by, by reading those three verses together. Now, you're going to hear that the, the, the version I read from, the English Standard Version, some of the phrasing, some of the wording might be a little bit different than you become accustomed to hearing in that video, and it may be a little different than what you have in your Bibles in front of you. That is okay. Uh, but follow along with me. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the scripture will also be on the screen behind us. It starts here in verse 1. It says, Therefore, which you know is always one of my favorite words for a scripture to start with, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You've heard it so much since January the 8th. We had to start here before we touch on anything else that might be in chapter 12 because I don't want the amazing imagery and the amazing lesson that is found here in these three short but powerful verses to get lost on you. I, I don't want it to become something that becomes monotonous because you've heard it each and every week so many times. It, like, we don't want it to be like, like Charlie Brown's teacher's voice where you hear Jesus is rah, 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 rah. You see, these three verses are amazing, and it's so cool to see how so much of everything that we have talked about over the last 11 chapters through the book of Hebrews is summed up and surmised so succinctly and so perfectly in just these three short verses. We're going to come back to these verses in just one minute. Um, it was either last week or the week before, depending on how you want to count 
weeks, uh, but, but it's been one year now of the Swigard family being here worshiping with y'all. And I only mention it because what I'm about to say next, since I've been here for almost a year and, and probably done this 50 or so times with you guys now, uh, you have no reason to plead ignorance to what I'm about to say about myself. I've said it before, and I have a feeling you guys agree with me, is sometimes my brain works in very mysterious ways. Sometimes I make connections and I make attachments to, to things, especially God's word, in weird ways. And very often those weird ways that my mind makes those attachments is through the imagery of television shows or movies. Over the last year, if you wanted to count every movie reference that I have made here with you, you probably would need both hands and a few toes if you were going to keep track of them all. And there may be a day that I'm going to run out of movie images and, and, and movie references to share with you, but lucky for us, today is not that day. For whatever reason, these visual representations, they, they help me see clearer the picture that is being painted in the words given to us in, in, in Scripture. And when I read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, the, the imagery, the, the visual that immediately comes to my mind uh, is the movie Gladiator. Do, do we have any Gladiator fans? Almost all men. A couple women, but mostly men. Okay, that makes sense. You see, when Gladiator came out about the year 2000, I know there was a couple ladies that, that held their hand up. This isn't a sexist thing, I promise. Women can also just pretend to like Gladiator to please their boyfriend or husband. That is allowed, too. But when Gladiator came out, I was in high school, just about to graduate. And Gladiator was kind of the ultimate teenage boy movie. There was fighting, there was battles, there was epic one-liners that would be repeated for years and years to come, right? When Maximus would say, are you not entertained? Who could forget that? Now, truth be told, I also ended up really liking the movie, movie Gladiator because the movie Gladiator ended up making younger Daniel some money. Okay, as an 18 or 19-year-old, I think I've mentioned this before, is I worked as a commissioned salesperson, and I sold high-end electronics. Okay, this is back in the day, for any of you that are younger than me, when you could not just go pick up a flat-panel television for $199 at your local Walmart. Okay, this is back when, if you wanted a flat-panel television to hang on your wall, even a small one, you might spend seven, eight, nine thousand, up to $15,000 on one television. And if you wanted to, to have a really nice surround sound system to go with that television hanging on your wall, you might spend another five to $10,000 on your home entertainment system. So as this 18, maybe 19-year-old commissioned salesperson, it was my job to convince very successful people to, com to, to, to commit large sums of money to something that they did not need, but something that I thought they wanted. And what I learned is people were willing to spend that type of money on, on entertainment. If you were that type of person who would be, be able and willing to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on your home entertainment, you weren't paying actually for the technology. Right? You, you didn't necessarily care about how many watts or how many pixels it was. You were paying for the experience. You were paying for how something made you feel. So I would, I would take my customers back to what we called the private listening room. And we'd close the door and leave all the chaos of the rest of the store behind. And I'd sit them in comfy chairs right in the middle of the listening room. 
And, and then I would go and I'd make it look like I knew what I was doing. I would go over to a speaker and I'd, I'd fiddle with a few things. I'd pull on a couple wires to make the, the customer think that I really knew what, you know, what I was doing, that maybe these speakers were so powerful, if I didn't check the connections, we could all be in danger. And then I would hit play. That was really the hardest part of the job. I'd hit play on the DVD of the movie Gladiator. And I'd play two scenes for the people. Two scenes that I would hoping would make them forget where they were, that would make them forget that right behind them outside that door were fluorescent flashing lights that were all kinds of unruly loud noises. And the first scene that I would play, if you're familiar with the movie, is when the Roman army is um, uh, fighting a group of barbarians, I think in Germany. And they're fighting in the midst of this, this dense forest. And as the battle is ensuing, I, I would point out to them things that I would say, you've never even heard that before in the movie theater, have you? You'd hear arrows whistling by your head, hitting trees behind you that aren't even on camera. You'd hear screams of people fighting off to the sides that, again, aren't even in the scene. And then the catapults would launch, and they were launching these giant rock fireballs through the treetops. The whole room would shake. It sounded like a fireball was coming right through the wall, right next to you. And in all the little quiet moments between all the intense battles and the screams, I would point out these little tiny moments for them to listen to. And then I would say, let me play one more scene. I would jump ahead in the movie to where the, the star of, of the movie, uh, Maximus is his name. Maximus is a former general in the Roman army who has now been subjugated, who has been made a slave, and is now fighting for his life as a gladiator. But Maximus is standing in, in, in the middle of, of this arena, and I can't remember if it was the actual Colosseum or if it was somewhere else, but, but Maximus is standing amongst this great host, this amazing crowd of people, and the camera pans around him, and as it pans, you can just see tens of thousands of people, whether they're cheering or they're jeering, all there making their voice heard. And before I would hit play on the scene, I would say to the customer, don't just listen for the sound of a crowd. Right? What you want to listen for are individual voices, individual conversations in that great mass of people as the camera pans around. And I'd ask them to agree with me. Did you hear that? And of course, they would say yes. And that would be my introduction then to go in for like that first kind of trial close. Right? I'd remind them that if all they wanted to do was shake their windows, if all they wanted to do was have a sound system that was very loud, I could make that happen for them. Right? They didn't even really need me. They could head across the street to Walmart and they could get something that was loud. But if they wanted to experience precision and they wanted to experience detail, that they were going to need to buy the good stuff. Looking back, I haven't seen the movie Gladiator in many, many years, but it's that second scene where Maximus is in the center of the arena, surrounded by this great host of people. That is what my mind sees when I read those first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. It's the scene where there is an athlete or a, a competitor, and he's standing in the middle of an arena or the middle of a field or the middle of a court. And he or she is indeed surrounded by this great host of people. And they're in this moment now where all of their training and all of their lessons, all of the discipline that they have learned, all the sacrifices that they have been made, have all been training them up for a moment that is just like this. This moment where now they find themselves under the bright lights and everyone's attention is focused squarely upon them. 
I played a little bit of baseball, I played a little bit of soccer, I played a little bit of football as a kid. I think for any of us that played any type of sport, wasn't that always the dream? You'd have that fantasy as you were in your backyard. Right? For me, playing baseball, it was that fantasy of it's the, the, the ninth inning, game seven. Now, of course, I was on the pitcher's mound because, as I've said before, I like to be the one throwing the hard rocks at people, not in the batter's box having people throw the hard rocks at me. But the whole crowd grows silent as you go into your windup and you deliver your pitch, and at the sound of strike three, at the sound of that ball slapping against the leather, the whole stadium erupts and roars. Maybe you have similar dreams. Maybe golf. Maybe you have that fantasy of you're at the 18th green of the U.S. Open, and all you need to do is sink this one putt for the championship. They bring all the people out of the grandstands, and everyone surrounds around that 18th green, and as, as the ball drops into the cup, you, you scan the crowd, you see your friends, you see your wife and your children as they run towards you as you were victorious. It's March, right? March Madness. So maybe basketball, that classic fantasy. The ball comes to you as the clock is ticking down. Three, two, one. And your shot drops. All you hear is the switch as the, the whole arena, as they raid the floor, as they lift you up on, your on their shoulders. And maybe I've lost you at this point. But this is the same scene that is being painted for us as we begin to read that first verse of Hebrews 12 where it says, Therefore... Since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We always remember that whenever a piece of scripture, whenever we begin to read and we see the word therefore, we always have to stop and see what the therefore is there for. And as it always is, this therefore is always there to ensure us that we realize that what is about to be said to us what is about to be said now is in light of what was said previously. Right? It's almost like they're saying, uh, hey, do you remember last week's sermon? Okay, that's what they're saying. They're saying, do you remember all of those giants of the faith that we talked about last week? David and Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Sarah and Isaac and Rahab and Gideon. All of them. Of course you do. You know their names. If you spent time in church, you know their stories. But what's amazing here is what is now being said is that the attention or the spotlight, it's now going to shift away from these heroes of the faith of the past. Right? The spotlight is going to shift away in the arena from what was, as we're reminded again that, that all of those great heroes of the faith, they've all passed away. We're reminded again that God has now something that is better, that is available to us. But what is so cool and so amazing about these first three couple of verses of chapter 12 is that the spotlight now in the center of the arena or the mound in the middle of the baseball arena or the free throw line with the basketball in your hands as the time is running out, all of that focus is now put on us, the Christian. Right? It's you and I. It's the Christian who is now standing in the center of the arena. The author, we notice again, he uses the word we when he describes who it is that is standing among this great cloud of witnesses. Reminds us, he is not just speaking to this maybe potentially small group of Jewish converts whom he writes this letter to, that he's lumping himself in with this group of people. In turn, he lumps all of us in. All of us who would follow and find ourselves standing in this position at center court 
All of us who would find ourselves standing in front of this great cloud of witnesses. All of us who are ready to take up this mantle and compete. All of us who are ready to be cheered on, who desperately and eagerly want the encouragement that is needed to power us as we head towards the finish line. But if you want it to be even more amazing than that, this, this, this cloud, as it says, or this great crowd of, of spectators that are here, it's not just made up of any old person from the city who can afford enough money to buy a ticket. See, we're also, we know who it is that makes up this crowd. You see, when we consider the therefore, and you remember that what we're reading now here in the beginning of chapter 12 is just the natural continuation of the thoughts of the previous chapter, I think it becomes very clear with who it is that fills this arena that is cheering for us, who fills the arena that's watching as we finish this great work that their faith laid the bedrock for. It's indeed the same giants of the faith that we read about last week in chapter 11. The arena is not filled with fair-weather fans. The arena is not filled with fans who have nothing invested in the outcome of the race that we are running. It's full of those whose faith in God made their names worth recording for all of history as an example. And it's also filled with many more whose names we don't know, but who, who led lives of faithfulness that were told last week earned them torture and mockings and beatings that, that made them found to be in chains in prison who made them suffer stonings, who were cut in half, who found themselves left destitute. The arena is filled with the cheers of all of those who lived by faith, but only had an opportunity to see a glimpse of what was to come. Right? Those who glimpsed what we now get to see fully. They are watching us. It says they are encouraging us, that they are cheering us on in this arena. And again, these are fans that are qualified to cheer. They are qualified to inspire you as you run with endurance the race that has been set before you. We're reminded again and again that the, the competition that we find ourselves in, the race that we find ourselves running, that it is not going to be an easy one. It will require great endurance. Right? What we've been forewarned, forewarned time and time again was to put aside every weight to put aside everything in our life that might be cumbersome in our pursuit to cast away sin. Right? That we cannot allow our sin to hold us back. And we draw motivation for this all-encompassing endurance, not just from the crowd of faithful spectators and their example that was set for us. But we're reminded again that we have to look no further than Jesus Christ. We're reminded again that after all, it is Jesus Christ who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That, that it was Jesus Christ as well who he himself endured great suffering upon the cross. But that which he endured was so that we would not grow weary as we run our race. Or perhaps best understood that, that what Christ endured was so that we would have an enduring hope as we run our race. It's the same all too common theme that it seems like comes up week after week that we are promised that there will indeed be trouble in this world. That we're constantly having to be reminded that our hope is not here. It's not on this side of eternity. That our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. We're reminded again week after week that Christ is indeed above all. 
that he has brought a new covenant and that his new covenant is perfect and it is complete. We don't have to search for anything else. In fact, what what we're told is that you would be foolish as you were running this race to look for motivation anywhere else, that while you're striving for the sanctification of having the intentional sin removed from your life, if, if you are to take your eyes off of Christ and if you were to focus anywhere else, you might just stumble before you reach the finish line. I find this all to be amazing. It's all great. I find it all to be a great encouragement to me, to know who is cheering for me, to know that the prize that I'm, I'm, I'm striving for is certain and fixed. I I hope that that is also a great encouragement to you as well. Verse 3 then ends, and the chapter immediately takes a right-hand turn in verse 4. See, in verse 4, we're reminded that while we have faced struggles, we have not yet shed our blood. This is something that the 21st century church in America actually has in common with who this original letter was being written to. Yes, we have faced struggles, but we have not yet shed blood. And then a seemingly surprising instruction. All of a sudden, again, kind of seems to be out of left field, but all of a sudden, starting in verse 5, we're going to see this instruction to us about discipline. Verses 5 through 8. says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow, so I'm going to take a drink. It's a tough pill to swallow to to think that sometimes the challenges that you are going to face as you train for the running of your race that it is indeed possible that it could be discipline that God has allowed into your life. Or that it could be a consequence for our sin that God allows us to bear the burden of. Okay, this does not mean that every hardship you face in this life is discipline from God just to make you sharper, just to refine you. But I do think it's important that we believe that God can use all situations, everything that we are going to face can be used as training, that it all can be used as preparation for what is still to come. Or if we can look at everything that we face as discipline that is there to ensure that we are strong and that we are tried and that we are tested for when that time does come. And the author makes a pretty powerful statement. Obviously, we all want to avoid discipline, I think since we're we little ones, we've all tried to avoid discipline. Uh, But he says that if we do not receive discipline, he says that would make us an illegitimate son. And and culturally, that, that reference maybe doesn't make a lot of sense to us. 
We don't think about illegitimate sons very often. We're, we're very accustomed in our society to seeing families of all different shapes and sizes coming from all different backgrounds and blending together to make one family. We don't frown upon that. Obviously, there's ideal situations and there's less than ideal situations, but that is something we've come to grips with in our society. Here's what would be frowned upon in our society in a blended family. Let's say that there's a father and in his household he has children that are genetically and biologically his, and then he has children maybe through, through marriage from his wife from a previous relationship, and he decides, I'm not going to train up both of those kids the same. I'm not going to educate the kids the same. I'm not going to discipline them the same. I'm, I'm not going to treat them both like they are legitimate sons. We would look at that man and we would say, no, you have an obligation. You, you took this obligation on and it's time for you to fulfill your duties. We would frown upon that, but not so much in the Roman society when this letter was going to be originally written. You see, it would be very common for a Roman man of power or of wealth that he would have his, his, his biological, legitimate children with his wife. And he may also have some kids with his female servants. He may also have some children with his mistresses. Genetically, they are his children. But how it would be obvious to everyone who was his legitimate son and who was his illegitimate son is the man would only bother to spend the time and energy and money on educating and training and disciplining the children that he had with his wife. See, the other children, they weren't disciplined, they weren't trained up, they were not educated, and therefore everyone knew that those were not legitimate children. This discipline that we've all experienced that was given by man that type of discipline, it does have temporary benefits. See, with discipline that comes from the Father, discipline that comes from God, that has eternal benefits. So as much as it's not something that you like to hear preached, sometimes as Christians we do need to be ready and prepared to endure discipline. But if you acknowledge that God disciplines only those who are his legitimate sons... That if you're experiencing God's disciplines because you are his son or his daughter, that should help you to persevere, that should help you to endure. Uh, look what it says in verse 11. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Right? We may not see the, the fruit of our instruction right away. But God's word does promise us that it will always produce a harvest. Because again, we're reminded the reward that we are fighting for, that we are training for, competing for, racing for, whatever you want to say, it is not a reward that is temporary. It's certainly not a reward that is going to be easily torn down or apart. The reward that we compete for in this arena is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as chapter 12 comes to a close, the author of Hebrews is going to take one last opportunity. All right, next week is chapter 13. We say goodbye to Hebrews. So here in 12, he takes one last opportunity for, for these Jewish converts to, to remind them that Christ is above all. To compare and to contrast what was old with what is new. One last desperate, desperate pinch to convince these Christians that going back to what was, going back to what was inferior and has passed away, that that would put them on a fruitless race. 
In verses 20 and 21, he reminds the people how terrifying it was back in the Old Testament when God would come and he would speak to his people. He reminds them that that Moses would even tremble in fear in the presence of God. How those that heard God's voice, they would beg for it to stop often. But verse 22 starts with a but. And often it's a bad thing when a verse starts with a but we've seen in Hebrews. But this is a good but. This is a but that brings us joy. This is a but that should help us to be provided with endurance. In verse 22 it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect. He he says, and, and yes, this is an allusion to the new Jerusalem that is still to come. He says, you remember how fearful and how trembling the giants of the faith were in the Old Testament when they when they were in God's presence, he says. It will not be that way for us. He says there will be a day where we will not tremble. We are going to be in the city of the living God, of the one true God, that we are going to be gathered with, with a number of angels that is uncountable. And we are not going to run at the sound of God's voice. We, we are not going to bury our heads in the sand in his presence. And even though what is said there maybe sounds like a little bit of a tongue twister, we can be assured that, 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 that we, that, that Christians are there among that innumerable amount of angels in God's presence because of what it says in verse 23. Verse 23, again, it says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's us. That's me and you that he's talking about. The, the Greek word that is used here for assembly, originally by the author, it's the word uh, ekklesia. And I know that I'm not a, a Greek scholar, and many of you aren't. But that's a word that most of us have heard before if we spent time in church, because we see it again and again in our New Testament. When we see that word ekklesia, does anybody know what it refers to? It refers to the church. It refers to the body of believers. So in that one line that may sound confusing from verse 23 and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, we can simplify this whole passage a bit, make it a lot less confusing. It says there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Right? The foundations of this kingdom are as sure as anything ever has been or ever will be. That this kingdom, it is the kingdom of the living God, the one and only true God. And in this kingdom, there is going to be an uncountable amount of angels. And right there, alongside of those angels, are going to be Christ's church. Not the buildings, but the people. It's the people who we see are the firstborn. Who are the sons, who are the daughters. Think back again to what you know about Jewish culture Was it not always the firstborn who always received the blessing? See, Christ's church, his people, the body of believers, they have their name, it says, enrolled in the uh, roll book of heaven, a.k.a. in the book of life. And all of those whose names are found there are going to be sons and daughters of God and that they are going to be given an inheritance. The inheritance is a place in this everlasting, in this unshakable kingdom. That is what you are fighting for. That is what you are striving for. That is what you are training for. That is what you are racing for. 
Right? This is the prize that all of those faithful men and women from yesterday, the, 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 the Moseses and the Rahabs and the Abrahams and the Davids and the Gideons and the Sarahs, right? the whole lot of them, this is the prize that they are now watching you compete for. They cheer you on because you now have a chance to possess the whole picture. They were only offered a glimpse if I can go back to the movie reference uh, one more time before we wrap up yesterday, or today I should say, uh, it probably is one of the most powerful scenes in the movie Gladiator. Maximus is in this small little dinky arena, and again, he's gone from being a general to being a slave. And the people, when they would come to these gladiator events, they usually weren't rooting for the slaves that were being thrown into the arena. Right? They were just fodder. They would root for the champions. And Maximus gets, gets thrown into to the arena with six or seven other guys, these just trained killers. I wanted to play the scene for you this morning so it would be more powerful, but what I came to remember is right before he says this line that I want to point out, he actually beheads a dude with two swords, and I figured it's probably not church appropriate, so... Watch it at home with your parents' permission. It's this scene that after he vanquishes the last foe, he does away with these six or seven guys, and the whole crowd is just kind of left hushed. They've been jeering him the whole time, and now that he's succeeded, they just kind of sit there quiet. And Maximus, in his anger and his fury, he never wanted to be here. He didn't want to be fighting these men. He throws his swords down, and he screams, Are you not entertained. Okay, this is the situation that I see myself in. You see, but instead of being surrounded by a jeering crowd, I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And what my prayer is, is that when my life is over, when my race does finally come to an end, whenever I throw that last pitch in the ninth inning, whenever that might be, what my prayer is, is that the life that I have led and that the faith that I have displayed here on earth while I still have breath in my lungs, that it was indeed entertaining to those saints, those who sacrificed so much and displayed such amazing faith. Pray with me.